Hi, this is Julie Fudge-Smith, and I just want to let you know that the first few minutes with Dr. Fowler, we have some audio challenges, but hang with us because it gets better and it's definitely worth listening to on this particular episode. So with that, off we go. Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Tina Spring, and today I'm joined by Julie Fudge-Smith and veterinarian um, and my my friend, Catherine Fowler, and we're going to discuss um, veterinary hospice care. A, a warm, fuzzy conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is a... Well, welcome, Catherine. We're so glad you're here. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's it's a tough subject, but we are not afraid of tackling tough subjects here on Your Family Dog because these are questions that people have. And I don't think a lot of people know that hospice care would be available for their pet. They don't think they even know what hospice care for an animal is or what it looks like. So maybe you could give us a definition of, of hospice care and how that works for owner and pet. Absolutely. And I, I do think that a common misconception is that hospice is just a fancy way of, or a a euphemism for euthanasia. Um, that's not actually true. It's it's similar to the idea in people. Hospice care is for the terminally ill pet, but for the weeks and months before they die. Um, so it focuses on meeting the physical, mental, and emotional needs of pets and their families during the final stages of incurable disease. Um, and I actually do in-home hospice care, which I think is ideal because it allows the animals to stay in the comfort of their own home. Okay. Well, that's that's good. And that's a really lovely definition. I think it does clarify um, things. Now, so what kind of in-home care are you going to provide that would be beneficial for both owner? I'm assuming that this is beneficial for both owner and for pet. Is that correct? It is correct. Um, it's really meant to give the animal physical comfort and, of course, also emotional and mental comfort. But you know, for the animal, a lot of the focus is on meeting their physical needs, while for the owners, a lot of it is on educating them and supporting them through decision-making processes and giving them some time to come to grips with the fact that, that the end is coming, that their pet has a terminal illness. And since this is something that we have to struggle with in, in veterinary medicine, how the end will come, when it will come, when is the right time to euthanize, how they want to do it. And... Um, I think it can bring a lot of comfort to people to just openly acknowledge that dying. Um, right. They have limited time with them, but that hopefully they're still having a, a decent quality of life and that we're going to do everything we can to help. Um, and then also that when you, when the end comes, here's how you can decide and here are the options for, for what the euthanasia would look like. It's, it's a time when you, you have to be careful to avoid using, brutal language, you know, like at a euthanasia, you know, after the, after you've given the injection, when you listen to the heart, you would never want to say your pet is dead, because that sounds awful. Nobody wants to hear that. I wouldn't want to hear that about my own pet. But you also don't want to use such veiled euphemistic language that people don't understand what's going on. Um, so mm-hmm. if you sort of say in a really vague way, oh, you've made the right decision. He's in the be- in a better place now. The owner may not really be sure, like, is he actually dead yet? And they don't want to ask. 
So I've kind of digressed, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it is meant to provide comfort to the owner. And part of that is balancing sensitivity and, and clarity, giving people right. to ask those questions and get them answered. Um, Right. Well, I also think you have to be, words are really important and you have to be careful how you phrase things. I think saying to somebody, your dog is in a better place now is in some ways saying, you mean it wasn't in a good place with me? Right. Um, it can be taken terribly, um, you know, the wrong way. And so I think you're right. I think words have to be clear, but they have to be compassionate. And finding those words are really, is really hard. And I think that, that somebody who is in hospice care probably has dealt with it enough that they've got the dialogue right, that that balance between compassion and and, and honesty. Or they're continually tinkering with it. And let me yeah. one thing I forgot to mention before, which was the definition that I gave you of hospice was stolen directly from the, a website for the International Association for Animal Hospice and Palliative Care. Okay, well, great. If you could give us that, that website, we'll make sure that's on the show notes so people can look that up in case they uh, they need it. So we'll make sure that that's on the show notes. Tina, do you have a question? Catherine, one of the things that I, I selfishly get concerned about, because you're my friend, but, but also for, you know, the bajillion veterinarians I know and I'm, I'm friends with, when you told me you were getting this specialty in, in providing hospice care, which I think is awesome. Like, um, I know you were crazy helpful with Stuart and, um, I think I think you and I were even working together when we were losing Shorty. Um, that being said, like I do worry about the compassion fatigue part um, and making sure you're around long term to help <laughs> take care of lots of animals and families. So is there like how do you balance doing this really amazing work where you're blessing the families you're working with, but still maintain like good mental health, emotional health for yourself? I think that that is actually easier for me now in my current situation because I have my own mobile practice. I set my own schedule um, and I can take, I can mostly space out the euthanasia appointments so that there aren't too many right on top of each other. And I can also take time off when I need to um, I think it's more more difficult in general practice where you have no control over what comes in. You may have three or four euthanasias in a day and you have to go straight from a euthanasia into another appointment and be however, whatever is appropriate for that appointment. Happy if it's a kitten or a puppy, concerned if it's a sick animal. And I, I don't mean that you're acting, you know, but, you know, you have to try to generate the energy that's appropriate for a particular appointment and that can be super draining and it's it's draining not just for vets but also for the support staff like the technicians um, and they don't they don't get any any credit or any time to decompress either and I think sometimes we all we all forget the toll that it takes on them right well I think too is that in in general practice I, I there there's a difference too I think in euthanasias when you have a, a terminally ill animal and it's time to say goodbye and you've had a chance to, to say goodbye, and sad mm -hmm. and as difficult as that is, that's a completely different emotional package than if you're doing a behavioral euthanasia. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so I think that in some ways, 
it's a little bit easier for you because you're not doing those behavioral euthanasias. You're doing end of life euthanasias. And I think it's particularly difficult for general practice vets who perhaps in the same day are doing a behavioral euthanasia, you know, end of life euthanasia, diagnosing terminal cancer. You know, I'm going to go home and bury myself in a bottle of scotch. Yeah. In front of the TV. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I so I think that that not that euthanasia is ever easy. I think there are times where it's perhaps feels more appropriate or correct or right. necessary um, and not quite as tragic, perhaps as a behavioral that, euthanasia may be. Absolutely true. Or um, you know, I I saw early in my career a, a puppy that had broken both his femurs. And the owners couldn't afford surgery. And there's no, he can't, you can't walk with two broken femurs. Um, there's no, you can't put a cast on them. There's no other way for them to heal. And we euthanized him and that, you know, that was awful. Yeah. Um, and it was awful for them, awful for him, but and awful for us, you know, all. So you're absolutely right. There are times when, and I think too, being able to do it at home is something that people people really value and that makes it so much easier and less stressful on the pet. And so I feel like being able to do that is, is giving them a little bit of a, of a gift. It is a gift. It's a true gift. Um, And so that makes it a little easier too. I think when you, when you do it at home, you feel like it removes the, the grief or the guilt over the animal's last few minutes being, lying on you know it being in the vet's office which they don't like and maybe being scared and all that kind of thing at home it's just it's just much easier right well I, I think that you're giving them grace it, it, you know yes. if you don't want to call it a gift it's it's grace and there's not there's never a time that grace doesn't give something to somebody I mean even even in the most tragic of situations um, you can find grace there can, there's grace in how people behave. There's grace in, in how things happen and um, the results. So you're giving these people, you know, a grace and compassion at a time when they need it the most. And that's really, that is a gift. And I'm sure that, that they really do appreciate that as well. So Catherine, do you find people include children or other, like, are you helping people navigate those waters about like, okay, should, should the kids be home? Do the other animals in the household get to say goodbye? Like, are you, are you helping families navigate all of those pieces as well? Sometimes. And like, as far with children or pets, I'm basically fine with whatever is most comforting for the family. So with pets, obviously we don't know what's the most comforting for them. So we just have to guess, but some owners tend to have very strong opinions about that. Some of them absolutely don't want their pet to see. I think more often they do. They, they don't maybe want them to be there during the euthanasia, but they want to let their pet come in and sniff the body afterwards, um, their surviving pet. With children, um, you know, I think kids themselves often have strong opinions about this. And I think most often they don't want to be there um, unless they have a super strong bond with the animal. Um, So I always tell people if there's a group there, you know, family, friends, kids, whatever, I always tell them that 
they can all stay, they can all leave, or they can all do what each individual wants, you know, and, and also that can change. Someone may think they want to stay and then at the last minute realize they feel like they can't handle it and just get up and walk out. And that's perfectly fine. My own opinion is, actually, I don't know what my own opinion is. I think um, very young children, I, I don't know that it would really be comforting to them or helpful in that, I think. Older children, you know, it might. And if they have a really strong bond with a pet, it might be comforting for the pet. But I would never tell, you know, an 11-year-old, Fluffy needs you right now, you know, <laughs> sit there and pet Fluffy. You know, it's, it's still got to be for them. Right. The, the, the human factor has to has to come first. And, you know, every individual yeah. child is, is is different. I was thinking when you're talking about having animals, we had to put a horse down. And um, so that's the hardest. Oh, it was it was really hard. But the vet was so wonderful. And, and we were very lucky because he really supported Spotlight. So she didn't go thud to the ground, which is what I was afraid oh, of. He was able to sort of rock her and she went down and she That's laid nice. down. And so we, then we brought out our other horse, Blackie, who was very close to Spotlight, and he sniffed her over. But what broke my heart was heading back to the barn. Blackie suddenly stopped, turned his head towards Spotlight, and just whinnied and whinnied and whinnied. Oh. And so, I mean, yeah. I still get choked up about it. But I'm still yeah. glad I did it. You know, I was I was still glad yes. that I was able to let Blackie, um, you know, have his goodbye. So I yeah. think you just, you have to play it by ear. You got to play it by, you know, who's, who's who. And there are, right. there's no right. one right answer. I, no. And uh, so I think um, when you were talking too, I think one of the things that, that's helpful, I wrote a blog once. We had a dog who um, had got spinal degeneration and our older dog daughter was in college at the time and we knew that he was going to deteriorate, but we wanted to keep him comfortable until she got home and had a chance to say goodbye to him at Christmas break. So I got to thinking about what are the different ways in which you can get people to participate in taking care of the animal. And one of the things that I just made sure is that everybody had a chance to spend some time with Rebel. Everybody got a, a, something they could do for Rebel that was their mm -hmm. particular thing. And I just remember we put the Christmas tree up. Rebel was still alert. He couldn't move very well. So we put down a vinyl back tablecloth because he could some, he would sometimes leak. And then a nice, comfortable bed. And um, we gave him a Kong and a, and a bunch of popcorn. And he helped us put the tree up. And um, Yeah. And so Ellie's job was to make sure he always had some popcorn in front of him. And um, – <laughs> So I think that, that sometimes if in the process of hospice, I was going to ask you this, do you talk to people about how each member of the family can participate in caring for this animal and their way of saying goodbye? I haven't done that, but I think that's a fabulous idea. I mean, what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing to do. I, I think I usually just sort of outline our, our plan for supporting the pet and leave them to sort it out for themselves. But um that is, since that is kind of the point of hospice, or not the whole point, but part of the point is to give the owner time to say goodbye and to give the owners the feeling, all of the owners, the feeling that they're supporting their pet, then giving each person a specific, a specific role to play um, 
is a lovely idea. Yeah, well, one of the things my husband did was, is when the weather was so good, he would put Rebel in the wagon and take him, because Rebel loved his walks, but he couldn't walk anymore. So we put, we yes. padded the wagon and put him in the wagon, and Brad walked him around town so that he could have his smells and um, and stuff. And uh, so, Like a, a red wagon? Yeah, yeah, it was just a little red wagon and with, with the wooden sides, and we put Rebel in there, and he got, and everybody in town loved it. I mean, they'd stop, and we'd have treats, and they could all give Rebel a treat. And so it was also a way for my husband to feel like he was doing something for Rebel that Rebel yeah. couldn't do himself but really loved. And so yes. um, I make some suggestions in this blog. We'll also put a link to that on, on the on the podcast. But I would really encourage families to think about how every member of the family who has any kind of investment in this animal can find a way to care for this animal. Even the littlest person, even a toddler can throw popcorn. That's right. You know, Absolutely. or tibble or whatever it may be. Yeah. When we diagnosed my dog with a splenic mass and she was not in a good enough state of health overall to for us to pursue surgery, my six-year-old and I went to the grocery store and bought a tube of Braunschweiger and, mm-hmm. you know, came home. He didn't really, that wasn't exactly his job, but he participated in it for sure. And I think that meant a lot to him. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So Catherine, does it amaze you how often pe- people really just want you to give them the it's time like do you find that people yeah yes um just look you in the eye and go tell me tell me if it's time yeah yeah and yes and I do find um I did that I'm too. pretty comfortable <laughs> with that well that's fine I'm I'm comfortable with that I used to work with another vet um who was not comfortable doing that I think she's a wonderful vet but she feels very strongly about euthanasia and about deciding how to treat a certain illness. You know, we've given the owner options. We could, we could send you for an ultrasound or we could do exploratory surgery. Owners will say then in those circumstances too, well, what would you do? And I've always been comfortable saying, well, if he were mine, I would do the ultrasound or whatever. Um, but she just won't do that. She feels very strongly that it's their, it's their decision and she doesn't want to try to influence them. Um, but yes, I think a lot of people really want that. And I understand, I understand that. And um, I try to be very honest about telling them what I would do if it were my pet, you know, including at euthanasia time. Sometimes people don't actually like the answer they get, but. Yep. You know. So I need to, I mean, I know even, I mean, I've been in practice long enough that I get calls and emails and texts pretty regularly that, as a matter of fact, today I found out that a client dog has lymphoma, right? Um, and I'll be referring to you at some point, I'm sure, with regard to that. Um, but uh, having, you know, recently been through it with you, with Stuart, like it was invaluable to have you just emotionally and intellectually plug in. Um and to help me navigate all that decision making because it's it's a burden. It is. Um, it's, a, it's, it's also a blessing. Yeah. You know but that I can. Also, it's rarely a super clear cut decision, and you all, even if to an outsider it might seem to be a super clear cut decision, to the owner it's a constant push pull of, well, look, he ate his breakfast. He must feel better today. I, you, I, and um, 
it's really helpful to have, I think, an outside perspective or a professional perspective on, yes, he ate his breakfast today, but still is, this is not going, he's not feeling good. This is- oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I know when the end was near for my Bingley, um, he, other than the cancer, he was an extraordinarily healthy dog for being, um, you know, 11, 12 years old. So the end, he deteriorated quickly. I mean, uh, he, I put him down July 6th and on like July 4th, he'd already gone for a two mile walk with me. Um, yeah, it went very, very quickly. Um, he had, um, histiocytic sarcoma and we, on the sixth, I took him in to see his oncologist and I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. You know, he's having these really hard nights mm-hmm. with hard, with high fevers. And I, and she said, you know, she said, there's, we could do this and we could do that. But what I would tell you is he's not the same dog he was. He's not the same mm-hmm. happy boss. dog that came to us and yeah. it would be okay. I can't, if you wanted, it would be okay to put him down because he's yeah. not he's deteriorating. And he had, I said, what are those like red spots on his belly? She said, his capillaries are starting to break. And, um, so they put the IV in and they let me go outside with him for a while and sit with him and say goodbye. But she was right there with me. And it was really invaluable for her to be honest with me and say, we can do these things. I can't turn the clock back. And he's not who he was. And that was the point where I went like, He's not. And thank you for saying that. And it's time to let him go. Right. And that helped you take a step back. Oh, absolutely. See the situation. But, you know, instead of being so caught up in the day to day. Right. Because right. he was like fine during um, the day, but then he'd get these 105 degree fevers at night. And it was just it was just awful. I was packing him like a herring at fish market, you know, with ice at night. And I just couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. Yep. And it was nice to have somebody say it's okay. It's really okay. I will say one thing that I have come to more and more uh, the longer I've been in practice is that I used to, I'm a fairly optimistic person by nature, and I tend to cling to hope. And I used to feel like if an animal was having any good days, then uh, we should keep them alive as long as possible. And I've come more and more to the realization that um, it's probably often good to let them go while they're still having some good days, because if they reach the point where all of their days are bad, then that's miserable for them. And also with most of these diseases, there's a point where it's only going mm-hmm. to get worse. You know, they're not, the clock is not going to turn back. They're not going to turn in, back into them, their four-year-old selves or whatever. Um, and to halt that process just a little bit earlier, you know, I, I think is often. Well, do you find that the hospice care um, then helps people to, to move into this decision that by actually providing care at terminal and you're talking about a terminal disease and we're talking about end of life issues, that the hospice care actually allows them to make that decision in perhaps a more humane way? I think so. And I think partly because it it's um, it is so focused on providing comfort. And I, I didn't really you know mention any of the specifics before, but you know, we focus a lot on pain control, you know, as many pain medications as they need. Um, we don't usually give 
them narcotic pain medications because dogs are so heavily sedated by those that there's not really much point. But other non-narcotic pain medications, we can put them on a bunch of different things to try to keep them comfortable. Control of nausea, which is a really big and I think overlooked problem, especially with kidney failure, which older cats are really prone to, and with some of these other diseases. So medications for nausea, um, helping them get around the house, you know, with like a sling under their back leg or their belly to help support them. Um, just, you know, with, with cats, maybe suggesting interventions to the owner, like getting a litter box with lower sides, that's easier for the cat to get in and out of all these kinds of things, comfortable bedding, we can give fluids, um, appetite stimulants in some cases, special foods, wound care, all these things. And so the focus is on keeping the animal as comfortable and as functional as possible. And so then I think when you've really gone out of your way to make your pet as comfortable as possible and to maybe modify the environment in the house a little bit to make it easier for them to get around and get in and out of their bed and all of that stuff, then when they really get to the point where even with all that, they're not comfortable and they can't get around the house, I think it's maybe a more clear cut decision mm -hmm. then at that point, because you know you've done everything. Right. You've used all the options and they were feeling pretty good, even though they had, you know, kidney failure or whatever. But now, now even with the anti-nausea medication, they don't want to eat. They're probably nauseated. And we've been talking about that the whole time. So yeah. So you, so you realize, I think some people just think, oh, well, he doesn't want to eat. He doesn't feel good. Um, he doesn't feel great, but that he's probably okay. But if you have a cat with kidney failure, and I've been talking to you for weeks about how um, we need to control the nausea and not wanting to eat is a sign of nausea, and then he stops eating, then you know, like, he's probably nauseated, and that's a horrible way to feel. And it's not good. Again, that's, you've reached the point where they're only going to get worse, not better. Right. And you've actually taught owners what to look for. I mean, part of the, of this intensive care with it, with a, with a cat or a dog is you're saying, okay, these are what we're going to do. And this is why, and these are the symptoms that you should be looking for. Then the owner becomes much more observant and much more involved in the process of actually sort of diagnosing when things are time to, to move to a different level. When you were saying about easy getting around the house, one thing I wanted to mention that a friend of mine did, and I thought this was brilliant. She rolled out all her yoga mats yeah, that is brilliant. And it was it was great because, you know, she could shift them for wherever the dog was. And it's great because it provides and she has Danes. So they're big dogs. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's it better than you know, no skid bath mats, you know. So anyway, yeah. so it, it works really nicely because you can just roll them up and move them to the next room if you need That's to. Great. She had three or four and yoga mats became you could walk. Around, you knew where the dog was because you could just follow the trail of yoga <laughs> mats. <laughs> so, yeah. um but uh, I was going to say this also, I was just going to mention to our listeners as well, they might want to go back and I will do links to these two are two with Alicia Karras, veterinarian from Tufts, when we talked about um, elder care, as well as is making that decision on euthanasia. There's a two parter with Alicia Karras, but people might find useful. And one of the things that Alicia said that you alluded to, and I think is really good, she was talking about the fact when you're looking at euthanasia and you're having that difficult time of making that decision, one of the things she said was, ask yourself, if is it, if, is it time, if, if I keep him around, is it my animal who's going to suffer? But if I let him go now, it's maybe just me who's going to yeah. suffer. Yeah. 
And I have to say, over the years, I've been impressed at how many clients have said I could keep him around longer, but it would just be for me. And people, right. a lot of people really seem to be aware of that and really try. Yeah, not everybody. I mean, obviously, um, some people it's easy to get so caught up in it. It is that you that you don't perceive that. Um, I had a thought that just what was it? Oh, um, I was going to say one thing about doing the mobile hospice and euthanasia or in clinic um, is that to get back to what you said about does hospice care help me people make a decision, a, a good a, a decision for euthanasia, maybe just a little earlier in the process or whatever. I think part of what it does is it starts the conversation about euthanasia earlier so that even if it's not time, which is often the case, people can still, they, they need, sometimes people need permission to ask you absolutely how it will work. And once they know how it will work and they know what they need to do when the time comes and who, like, you know, like in my case, they know that I'll come out to the house um, and if, you know, maybe we've even discussed how much it will cost or exactly what I do when I'm there, then that takes some of the fear out of it and the anxiety. And then when they, when they reach the point where they feel like maybe it is time, then the only thing they have to grapple with is how they feel about letting the pet go. Instead of also grappling with, is the vet going to judge me for this? Is it going to be stressful for the pet? Who do I talk to? You know, all of those things. It's, it's removed some of the mystery and the, and right. the anxiety from that. So, Oh, yeah, I think you're right, because I think uh, and Tina and I were both nodding because even though we are not veterinarians and we don't play them on TV, we <laughs> get these questions. We get people yeah. saying, how do I know when to let go? Is, yeah. is this a good time? And um, it's um, it's a difficult one for us to handle. I'm always saying to people, you know, this is why I think you need to have a really good relationship, not only with your trainer, but you need a good relationship with your vet. Because any good vet is someone that you can turn and talk to and say, what are my realistic options here? I mean, that's why I was so grateful for, I've had so many wonderful vets in my life and in my animal's life that I could turn to and say, what's going on here? I, I need help. Not only does my pet need help, but but I need your assistance as well. So um, I think they'll, what they'll find is is that most vets, at least most of the vets that I know, will never judge somebody for asking those questions. No, you know, yeah. they're actually going to be very grateful that you're asking the questions because it means that you are showing genuine compassion and empathy and concern for your animal in a way that puts their needs and their comfort above yours. And that's a that's a, a very heroic thing to do. Yeah. I don't know if our situation was the norm or not, but what what I have found with my dogs is typically and, and we haven't lost a cat in a really long time. So I'm just going to speak to the dogs. Um, typically, by the time we're getting to end of life care, we have a team. I mean, yeah. so oh, yeah. Catherine, Catherine came to me as a chiropractic vet. She was a referral from my everyday veterinarian. Um, often I'm talking to vets that I'm personal friends with, you know, across the country or even in other countries and they're consulting on the case. Um, and I am richly blessed that, um, my veterinary team, like everyone plays beautifully with one another and they, um, 
they recognize that that we're all leaning on one another um, mm-hmm. through whatever decision making we have. So, so my dogs tend to be overall very healthy, even mm-hmm. even to end of life stuff, stuff that is like it's not fair anymore. Um, in Shorty's case, he just hurt too much; we couldn't manage pain. Um, in Stewart's case, right, he broke with dementia on top of the the medical, you know, the more typical medical stuff, and so um, the the whole thing is just kind of brutal because they could go on. Yes. For a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think I can remember kind of silently wishing that they would just, you know, pass in their sleep overnight or whatever. Such a common, I've had countless clients say to me over the years, I'm just praying that he'll just die in his sleep and, they they almost never do, but I do. No, think that- but I also think like they would be pretty. That's a pretty brutal thing. I'm guessing. Well, right? like, I feel I've not observed it, but I, but it always seems to me like okay, that that animal was really really suffering before it got to that point. I I've, I don't know about having some random catastrophic event. That such that you actually die in your sleep. I, I don't think that would be so bad. But in general, when people hope for their animals to die on their own so that they can be so that the owners can be spared having to make a decision to euthanize, which is a super common thing. Um, but as a vet, when you see those animals dying on their own from the extremity of their disease, it usually is pretty miserable looking. Now, some people have religious objections to euthanasia. And, you know, that's, again, that's something that hospice care can help with. I mean, if you have such, you know, if you if you feel that euthanasia is morally wrong, then it, then we can still provide hospice to keep your pet as comfortable as possible, you know, until they do die on their own. Um, so that's one of the other roles for hospice care. I don't think that's super common in Georgia, but I I have encountered it, you know, from time to time. So, and, you know, that's basically what hospice care is in humans. So we can adapt it in veterinary Mm -hmm. for that too. Yeah. And providing that palliative care is just crazy important. Yeah. I I just Mm -hmm. think it's, it's a blessing. I, I'm really glad that, um, the veterinary care has moved more in, in the direction of we can manage pain, we can keep them comfortable and that there's an emotional component for the dogs or cats too, right? That it's not just that they're a physiological machine or a biological machine, but that there's, there's that emotional component to that end of life care as well. I was going to say to you for with, as far as Stuart and Shorty goes, I think that Having to euthanize for arthritis and for dementia are are two of the hardest ones um, because, you know, with arthritis, you have a dog whose organs are often all functioning quite well and who's mentally alert, but just who hurts. And that's just, that's heartbreaking. And with dementia, you have a dog whose, whose body is working great and may even seem happy in their own weird at that point way 
Um, but that sometimes they don't seem happy anymore. And that's the reason. And sometimes it's that the burden of taking care of them just becomes absolutely crushing for people. And, and that it's, that's an, it's an okay reason to decide to euthanize also, you know, a lot of times dogs with dementia don't sleep. They pace and howl all night. Um, they are going to the bathroom in the house 10 times a day. And their owners may love them very, very much, but no sleep for six months, you know, is not good for anybody. And I don't think anyone would describe the animal at that point as having a great quality of life or, or even a good quality of life. So right. I, I think that, you know, that's an, a perfectly reasonable time to choose euthanasia. But I think it often comes with a huge burden of guilt for the owners because they feel like they're doing it because they can't take care of their animal, they, because they don't have the energy to take care of their animal anymore. But I think that that's one of those cases where when you take a step back, you can see how much the owner loves their pet and what good care they've taken of it, and that it's not the same dog that it used to be, but it's still just devastating for the family. Right. We did a, a podcast with um, Eileen Anderson on her book, Remember Me, about canine cognitive dementia. Oh, and Okay. Yeah. And uh, she's got a wonderful website. I'll have a link to, to our podcast and to her book, which if your dog does have a uh, remember me is an excellent resource for owners with whose dogs have canine cognitive uh, dementia. So um, I highly recommend that. And uh, she's got a great website and she deals with a lot of these questions yeah. in a very compassionate, very empathetic way. And of course she's got just a Eileen and dogs is a wonderful blog anyway, award-winning blog. So I suggest anybody check that out. Um, so is there anything that you feel like you really have, we have been able to, to mention that you really want owners to know either about hospice or end-of-life issues as we wrap up this podcast? Um, nothing in particular, except, I mean, I think we've, we've actually, we've spent a good bit of time talking about euthanasia and um, deciding when is the right time. And just, just a reminder that that hospice is actually, you know, about all of the time leading up to that, from the time that you realize your pet has an incurable disease um, until you until you reach that point. And it's 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 meant to be a, a positive, a positive thing, you know, again, taking care of the animal's physical comfort, mental and emotional comfort, and helping the owners navigate, you know, a, a heartbreaking process of those final days, weeks, or months, and up to, and then, and then it can include, of course, um, euthanasia, making the decision to euthanize. Um, but one of the points of hospice is to offer an alternative to what we're calling premature euthanasia, which is kind of a harsh term. But I think what it means is, um, if you don't think of hospice as an option, then when you, as soon as your animal gets a bad diagnosis, you may feel like you just need to euthanize then because it's going to be a downhill slide until it's until they die. Um, and if you're aware of hospice as an option, you realize that, um, yes, they are going to eventually get worse and we, we will eventually have to euthanize or they will eventually die. But in the meantime, there's care that can keep them comfortable and give us all time to get, get used to the idea and prepare. And yeah, that so is a wonderful gift, a wonderful gift to give to those owners. Yeah, I mean, just having the support of navigating 
we can we can make this easier mm-hmm. for the animal mm-hmm. um to feel better and to have good days and mm-hmm. to to navigate all of that. Yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. really, really important. Yeah. I do too. I, I, I was, do too. I was grateful for the support, right? Like I loved that we did chiropractic and and that you were helping me gauge kind of where they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People need support at a time like that. The animals need support um, and the owners also need support. And so does the vet. And so yes. does the vet. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, Catherine, if you uh, make sure that you give us uh, your website and where okay. people might be able to get a hold of you who Absolutely. live in your service area, that would be great. We'll make sure that's on the website as well. So there's lots and lots of information for our listeners to check out on our website, which is yourfamilydogpodcast.com. And if you like this episode and you listen to some of our others, make sure you give us a great review on uh, Stitcher, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. So thanks again, Catherine, for joining us here on Your Family Dog, and we will hear see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.